Welcome to Practical Christian Living. It's not that Paul was against works. It's that Paul was against the idea that you could somehow do something and get saved. It was the work of God that saved you, not your own work. And James is even going to use an analogy that shows that he believes that exact same thing, although he words it differently. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. We are saved by grace, not by works, not by anything we can do. But works do play an important role in the life of a Christian when it comes to trusting God, obeying, and allowing our faith to overcome our fear. With James 2, 14 through 26, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary Tucson. Father, we really thank you for your word that you have given us something supernatural that works in us, that you stand behind what you say, and that if we have a right heart, it will get in us, it'll change us, encourage us, and challenge us. And in this passage that can cause some confusion and is difficult to really grasp how it relates to what Paul said. We pray that your spirit would be here. Help us to have a good understanding of this text and what it means. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to start off reading verse 14 of uh, James chapter 2 before we begin to start to talk about it because it makes a statement that will help you understand the difficulties that some people have had with this text. It says in verse 14, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? There's his introduction into the next major section in the book of James. There, this is the fifth major section each one of them have been to reveal the genuineness of our faith if you are a genuine christian then you are going to handle trials in a certain way you're going to be approved by those trials as it says in james chapter one how you handle temptation will show the genuineness of your faith how you handle the word of god or your desire and heart for the word of god will show the genuineness of your faith how you interact with people do you interact with people with favoritism or not will show the genuineness of your faith. And now, if you have works, reveal, or as James puts it, let's put it in the words that James uses, if you have faith, it will be perfected by your works. He really shows us that there are two different kinds of faith. There is dead faith and there is living faith. He calls it dead faith three times. He does so in verse 26, the very last verse. He does so in verse 20, and he does so in verse 17. Let's read that one. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's showing two kinds of faith, a faith that can be dead and a faith that can be alive. This is the passage, the text that Martin Luther had so much trouble over because he seems to be saying the opposite of what Paul is saying. Paul says, we have been saved by faith. It is not of any works, lest you boast. We've been saved by faith through grace. You can't boast about it because it's not any works that you've done. James is not saying that our works are what we are saved by. 
He's saying that if you are genuinely saved, then faith is going to show that. Our faith is going to prove that. Paul would put it another way. Paul says the same thing. But Paul says your works are the fruit of your salvation. James doesn't use the fruit analogy. Instead, James says, if you have faith without works, it's dead. And if you have faith with works, then your faith is made perfect by your works, or it is a revelation of the kind of faith that you have. When I was 14 years old, I'd grown up in the United Methodist Church. I only remember one church, and I didn't go on to learn more about the Methodist Church, so I'm by no means an expert on what the Methodist Church teaches or believes. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, a tremendous man, believed that he needed to preach the gospel, and he was preaching in churches that didn't want him to preach the gospel. They wanted them to teach that church was the answer and not a relationship with Jesus. And in his journal, he's got a three-day period where he writes, taught at this church, was asked not to come back. Taught in the evening at this church, was, was kicked out. Taught here, was stopped before the sermon was done and asked not to return. On the third day, he says, I rented out a field, preached from horseback, 10,000 people came out to hear me preach. It was so powerful that bars would shut down in the towns that he was preaching in. Not because he preached against the evils of alcohol, but because lives were so radically changed by John Wesley that they didn't go to the bars anymore. People just weren't, they, when they got saved, they didn't want the alcohol anymore and they just didn't go to the bars. That's real transformation by faith. When you are saved, you are radically changed. And if there hasn't been a radical change in your life, then you're not sure. Maybe I should even be bolder than that. If you're the same person now as you were before you gave your life to Christ, then we can say it's the dead faith that James is talking about. So we want to examine our faith today and see, is it living faith or is it dead faith? Now, when I was 14 years old, uh, the youth pastor at the Methodist church that I was in, I'd gone through confirmation. I'd been told that as long as I believed in God, I was saved. And so he asked me if I was going to go to heaven. By the way, that's a great way to begin a conversation when you want to witness to somebody. How do you know that you're going to heaven? That's a great question to ask. That's what he asked me. How do you know you're going to heaven? I said, well, I believe in God. And he said, well, does the devil believe in God? I said, yeah, devil believes in God. Is the devil going to heaven? No, no, devil's not going to heaven. Then he said, well, then it takes more than just believing that he exists, doesn't it? It takes you believing in him and opening up your life and inviting him in. And he quoted several passages where Jesus talked about giving our lives. Jesus himself said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but those that do the will of the Father, which is the same things James says in here. James isn't writing something that isn't taught by Paul. Read 2 Timothy and Titus. And Paul over and over again talks about our works proving out our faith. It's not that Paul was against works. It's that Paul was against the idea that you could somehow do something and get saved. It was the work of God that saved you, not your own work. And James is even going to use an analogy that shows that he believes that exact same thing although he words it differently. Now, when I prayed that prayer, 14 years old, I invited Jesus into my life. I prayed a very similar prayer to one that I lead people in at the end of service if anyone gives their life to the Lord when we give an altar call. And my life radically changed. At 14 years old, I became a different person. 
Now, I don't know from other people's perspective how I changed to them, but I know from my perspective, first of all, I, I began to really love God's word. I wanted to know it. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to read it. I discovered J. Vernon McGee on tape and eventually discovered Pastor Chuck Smith on tape. And that led to a connection of things that ended up with me being a pastor at Calvary Chapel. God began that work pretty early on in me. There was a, a different feeling with sin before I gave my life to Christ. There wasn't that I didn't, everybody feels guilt, right? It wasn't just guilt. I gave my life to Christ and then when I would blow it, I would really not want to blow it. I would really want, Lord, I want to give you purity. I want to give you a, a right life and I want to be right with you. There was a difference, a change in my attitude. I also wanted to tell people about Jesus. I went home not long, a couple weeks after I got saved. I went home one night and I told my mom, Mom, if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to go to hell. <laughs> Zeal without knowledge, right? My mom said to me, I was the one who took you to that church. Now you're going to the church and coming home and telling me that I'm on my way to hell. I had such radical changes in my life that eventually ended up proving the faith that I had. Now, had I not had any changes, then how would I know that I was saved? And it kind of takes away the old once saved, always saved argument, doesn't it? I always say that the once saved, always saved argument is a mute argument. I don't even want to argue with people because if you say, listen, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer, I invited Jesus into my life and you are living out in the world, then that shows that you don't have the fruit of salvation in your life and you have no confidence at best that you made a commitment to him. If you're genuinely saved, then something's gonna happen inside of you. And that's what James says. When he says, can faith save you? Now he goes on to explain that in verse 15. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things for which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Therefore also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The first thing that he does is give us an example, a negative example. He's gonna give a couple of positive examples by the end, but he gives us a negative example. And the negative example is somebody comes into our presence and, at presence and they don't have food, they don't have clothing, and we say to them, God bless you, be at peace. We walk away, we don't meet their needs. That what has our faith proven out? We're gonna have compassion. One of the things that we're gonna see when someone's struggling and someone's hurting, that we wanna come alongside of them and help them out. What good is it if we don't have that? Now you might say, well, that's different than what Jesus taught or different than what Paul taught. But Jesus said in the day of judgment, I'm gonna divide the sheep and the goats. And I'm going to say to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep say, when were you naked and hungry and thirsty? And when were you sick and in prison and we visited you? And he said, when you've done it to the least of these, then you've done it unto me. Then he says to the goats, I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. You didn't care for me. And they say, when did we not care for you? He says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, then you didn't do it unto me. So now, Keith Green, at the end of his song called The Sheep and the Goats, he says this line, the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and did not do. 
Does that mean that we are saved by what we do with those who are destitute or what we do with those who are hungry or thirsty or need clothes or sick or in prison? It is a revelation of the real faith that you have. Jesus talked about giving a glass of water in his name and receiving a prophet's reward. It's part of what we do. We have a heart for the poor. Now, we don't always know how to, in the flesh, go out and do that. We don't always know what we can do, but we've got a desire to do that. I've found over the years, encouraging people to give to the poor is such an easy thing to do. Excuse me. I found over the years, encouraging Christians to give to the poor is such an easy thing to do because it's something we as Christians already want to do. There's just something there that God has put in us. We might always not know how to do it, but I I just challenge you, find a way. Find a way to be involved in it, to really be reaching out and making a difference in their lives. Now, he goes on to say then, in verse 17, after asking the question, and he asks a series of questions here, right? Can faith save you? And then at the end of verse 16, uh, what does it profit? He's got this person he's having a conversation with and he's going to continue to ask these questions as the text continues on. Thus also, he says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's his point. Dead faith compared to living faith. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 18 gets to the heart of what James is talking about. He says clearly, I will show you my faith by my works. He is not saying that works will save you. He's saying that his faith will be revealed by works. You show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith with works. It's not that faith is not needed for salvation. And I like J. Vernon McGee said this, and then a few pastors have used it since then, that Paul and James are not fighting against each other, but they're standing back to back fighting different enemies. James is fighting a licentious group of people that feel like I don't need to change anything. Once I receive Christ, I'm okay. Paul fought those very same people in Romans chapter six. When Paul said, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? And then he said, may it never be. How are we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that you've been set free? You are no longer a slave to sin. So that's the same battle. So he clearly states here that faith is revealed by its works. Now, this is the passage that Martin Luther struggled with in the book of James. Remember when we had our introduction into James? I told you that Martin Luther had wrote a commentary on the Bible and he put James at the end of his commentary and he had put in, the, in his little introduction to the book that James was a book of straw because he struggled with this passage, the one we're covering tonight, because he didn't see how he could connect it to what Paul said about being set free from legalism. And you got to think about Martin Luther's background. Martin Luther was a monk. Martin Luther was a man that climbed up and down stairs on glass because he believed what he did somehow pleased God. And so anything that began to smack of any kind of legalism, works justification kind of a thing, Martin Luther repelled at it. 
He believed that we had been set free. He loved uh, the passages where Paul talks about the liberty that we have in Christ, the grace. And so when he read this, it really upset him. Now, what you don't hear about Martin Luther is that later on he repented from this, that he put James back where they generally put James in his day, and he took out the statement, this is a book of straw in his later works. So there came a point where he said, you know what? I understand. There came a point where he was able to handle it a whole lot better, that he didn't struggle as much with it. But this is uh, the passage. But right here, James simply says, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's not a denial of faith in any way, shape, or form. Now, what is faith? Faith is when you believe God enough to live what he says. That's faith. And faith is the evidence of things hoped for, it's the conviction of things not seen. We have things we're hoping for, a glorious eternity, God working in the future of our lives. There are things unseen that God wants to do in our lives. And when you live differently, when you say, I'm no longer gonna do what I wanna do, but I'm gonna do what God wants me to do, you are then gaining the things that are, are unseen and the things that we hope for. That's the way we gain them. Isn't that awesome? When we live by faith, we gain the unseen and we gain the things that we hope for. And so works is the evidence that we believe God and we believe him enough to live the way we are supposed to live. Now he goes on to say here, I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You believe that God exists. You believe that there's one God. You do good. When I was in the Methodist church at 14 years old, I believed that God existed. Not a bad thing to believe that God exists. But I wonder out of all the people that attend church, call themselves Christians in all of America, even around the world, I wonder how many of them have a demonic kind of a faith. Demons believe in Jesus so much that they tremble at the name of Jesus. When you say Jesus, demons go, oh, I don't like that. It was like when my youngest son watched over and over again, The Lion King. Any of you guys have kids that were that age? Did you watch it? My daughter watched Beauty and the Beast a million times. My son watched Lion Kings. And remember, uh, there's the hyenas that are there and Mufasa is said. And one of the hyenas goes, say it again, say it again, Mufasa. And they tremble at it. Well, demons tremble at the name of Jesus. They believe in Jesus so much that they tremble but they are not saved. They have an orthodox belief. When demons talked to Jesus, at one point they said, don't send us away before our time. They believed there was a time coming when they were gonna be sent away, just as the Bible says. So one pastor said it this way, demons have proper eschatology. That's better than a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians don't have eschatology it's the study of the last days. A lot of Christians don't know what to believe when it comes to eschatology. A lot of Christians throw their hands in the air and say, I, I don't know what to believe, so I'm not going to believe anything. By the way, I don't know if that's a good idea, all right? I think God's given us his word. A third of it is prophecy. We should dive in. But demons knew what they believed about their theology. I also believe that demons believe that God is one God, that demons believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead. In other words, they are orthodox in what they believe. Is it possible that you could believe and be orthodoxed? and have a dead faith instead of a living faith? It is if your faith doesn't transform your life. 
It is if your faith doesn't make you someone that you didn't used to be. Now, just to make the point again that James is not saying this while the rest of the Bible says something different. Remember that John said, if you say that you love God, but you hate the brethren, you're a liar. John said, if you say you love God, but you don't do the things that God says, you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar. Again, it's the same thing. We will have the proof of works if we have faith. Faith will be revealed by works in our lives. In verse 20, then he says, but do you not know, O foolish man? (laughs) And I love now that he goes to this imaginary person or perhaps it's not so imaginary and he calls him foolish for believing that you could have dead faith. Now, why would it be foolish? Why would it be foolish for you to think that you can believe and not have a faith that transforms you? Because the most foolish thing that you could do is to believe that you're okay when you're not okay. Is to believe that you're on your way to heaven when you're not. Could there be anything worse than being one of those that Jesus talked about who says, Lord, Lord, and he sends them away? That there will, there will come a day when there will come some who will say to him, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say to them, away from me, for I never knew you. They believed him enough to see miracles happen, but they didn't have that transforming faith. Now, whenever I give a message like this, some people get upset. I will get, believe this or not, nasty emails. <laughs> some people are upset that, I'm discouraging people in the security of their salvation. That I really ought to be concerned that people are secure in the fact that they're saved. And here's the thing. If you are genuinely saved, I want you to be as secure as you can be in Christ. I want you to be secure in Him. I want you to have security blankets, a security system. I want you to be secure in Him. But if you're not saved, I don't want you secure in that. And and what pastor worth his salt would say, I don't need to challenge people as to whether or not they're really saved. I can't imagine it. I mean, you do show incredible wisdom in going to the church that I pastor. (laughs) Or at least being here tonight. may never come back again after that, but you're at least here tonight. So certainly you must be saved, right? No, I'd rather challenge you. I'd rather step out on a limb and take a a chance of maybe offending you that you would really examine to, to see whether or not you're really saved to going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I really want to make sure that I know you and walk with you. I really want those radical changes that are in my life. And so again, verse uh, 20, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he gives us two examples. These are positive examples as to what faith looks like. And not surprisingly, one of them is Abraham. And then surprisingly, one of them is Rahab. And you'll see what I mean as we continue on. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Huh? When he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, Abraham is a young guy of 75 years old living in Mesopotamia. He gets a call from God to leave and to go to uh, the land of Canaan. When he gets there, God says to him, Abraham, I have a plan for you. You're going to have a son. Through that son, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the earth. His wife, Sarah, was barren. He's 75 years old and doesn't have any kids. 
and his descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand upon the earth? Well, we see from our perspective today that that's exactly what happened. All of the Arab peoples and all of the Jewish people come from Abraham. They're descendants of Abraham. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.